Just take a moment. Breathe in through your nose, a deep calming breath. And then out through your mouth, long and slow. Keep going deep and slow. You're here listening because you care. You're here because you want to know more. You're here because you are strong enough. You're listening to the Strong Enough podcast from Eating Disorders Families Australia. Self-care is vital. Use this short meditation at the start of each podcast to take a moment for yourself. Keep those calming breaths going as you listen to this episode, which is sponsored through the generosity of people facing similar challenges. You have to be bold. You can't spend the next few weeks or months saying, you want a plate of salad? Okay, if that's what you manage to eat, then so be it. No, you can't do that. You have to be bold. The general rule is you've got to find ways of being a wise, kind, firm coach rather than regularly losing your temper or bursting into tears. So just a few words of connection, of kindness. It's okay, sweetheart. You're having a hard time. Yeah, I'm guessing this is hard for you. Okay. And so we connect. We go from connect to direct with an and. And at the same time, I want you to have the next bite. You're listening to Strong Enough, the podcast from Eating Disorders Families Australia. I'm your host, Joe Stone, and our guest today is Eva Musby. While some of you might know Eva from her international best-selling book or her popular workshops, Eva is actually not her real name. She uses a pseudonym so she can tell her story candidly on the world stage, sharing her daughter's restrictive anorexia diagnosis and road to recovery. It means she speaks from the heart about the most difficult and challenging times, honestly and with great insight. In this episode, we are particularly focused on the topic of refeeding, which is a term Eva breaks down for us if you're new to the conversation. She offers gentle and practical help as she talks us through her most successful tips and ideas about how to encourage and support your loved one using a family-based approach. It's important to note that this discussion is not a substitute for professional advice. Some tips might be relevant to your own situation and others might not. But in this chat, I found there were really great life lessons for us all about kindness, compassion and empathy that we can use in many ways in our everyday lives to cope with and climb over adversity. Eva, thanks so much for joining us on Strong Enough. Let's have a quick refresh just to start on with refeeding for those, especially on the learning curve. So what exactly is refeeding? It's very simply bringing the, bringing the nutrition back. Uh, it's often also called re-nourishing, um, full nutrition. So the all the food groups, getting rid of the restriction. And if the person has lost weight or failed to grow, 
it's absolutely imperative to bring their weight back up. Mm. And is that usually done in hospital or is it done at home? The um, modern the, the research points to do it at home, but um, for some people it doesn't work at the beginning. So in all this discussion, I want to <laughs> I want parents to think it's okay if it doesn't work. It's not your fault. Hospital is there to give you a, a leg up to get the refeeding started if you can't manage at home. Mm. A lot of the um, EDFA members really describe this as the hardest time because you've been in hospital and you've had that really intense medical support. Now you're home and you're sitting at a table and you're staring at each other and this plate of food and it becomes a, a real battleground. Talk to us yes. about how we can help from there. Right. Well, there, there, is, there are so many new skills that parents have to learn. There's experimentation. So the parents deserve a lot of help at this stage. There are a lot of resources. So, you know, beyond the, the podcast that we're going to have. So the parents need to know there is help. There's a lot of learning to do. Um, ideally, they would already practice in the hospital if their child has started off getting refed in the hospital. So, you know, we look after transitions. So if everyone knows, okay, I can get my child to eat in the uh, hospital background, great. Otherwise, it's more commonly you go to your health service as an outpatient and they say, okay, your child has an eating disorder, go home and give them three meals and three snacks every day. And you go, how am I going to do that? Obviously, I've already tried. Yeah. And so some practitioners, especially FBT, family-based treatment, they believe you've got to find your own way. And I believe we shouldn't be reinventing the wheel. You need to know what tips worked for other people. So that's what I do. It doesn't mean you should do what everyone else tells you, but at least you've got a place to start with to experiment. So let's have a chat about those. What are some of your top tips that you might have for people who are just coming into this refeeding stage? On a very practical point of view, you're sitting at the table, you show a lot of confidence and you. the first tip is to give direct prompts. So a direct prompt is the opposite of what do you feel able to eat, my sweetheart? It's, okay, sweetheart, let's get started. You know, pick up your fork, have the first bite, have some of the potato now. So it's very, very much guiding, coaching in a kind way, but also very directive. Uh, the other next tool that I like to coach people with is using distraction. As soon as you've given your direct prompt, you you take their mind off the horror of this meal. And then, you know, I've got pages and pages of tips for meals, but th those would be the first two I would introduce people to. And you had this wonderful tip that I really liked, which was connect before you correct. It's very kind and, and very loving. Can you explain that? Yes. Um, I'm, 
it's got lovely alliteration, but I changed it to correct, connect, sorry, connect before you direct, because I wanted people to understand direct is all the sensible stuff you want to say to your child, the logic, the instruction, the explanations, you know, you need this, have the next bite. We're not discussing ingredients. Uh, we're not discussing your body shape. So that's the direct bit. And the thing is, your child is in a state of anxiety and confusion and overwhelm, probably as you are as a parent, uh, in fight or flight. So to reduce this um, fight or flight state, we first connect. So just a few words of connection, of kindness. It's okay, sweetheart, you're having a hard time. Yeah, I'm guessing this is hard for you. Okay. And so we connect we go from connect to direct with an and, and at the same time, I want you to have the next bite. So connect first, then direct, takes takes a sentence or two, and it's about reducing the the fight, the, the way your child just can't hear you if you go straight into explanations and instructions. It's so hard to stay calm in these situations. How do parents do that? You know, um, <laughs> first of all, we, every parent is going to make mistakes and is going to lose their temper. So a lot of self-kindness. Indeed, um, in my resources, I talk quite a lot of self-compassion because there's evidence, there's research behind self-compassion techniques. So Self-compassion for the times you lose your temper. The general rule is you've got to find ways of being a wise, kind, firm coach rather than regularly losing your temper or bursting into tears because the research has shown that this is likely to make your child's recovery a lot harder. So you need help with that. And for me, the self-help um, in fact, at one stage, I created a self-help for myself, which is now available to all parents on my website. And they're guided audio meditations. And oh, I, love um, that idea. I created, yeah. So I created a half hour one, which might help me go to sleep and, you know, set me up in the morning or something. But I also created, I think, an eight minute one. And I would just use it before a meal to put myself in a state where I'm kind to my child. I know I'm not, I'm not hating my child for putting us through all this horror. I'm not judging my child. It's like, okay, you know, um, maybe even the serenity prayer. Do, do you know, um, I, I'll say it because it might help the, the listeners. Give me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. So there's, a, there's the acceptance in there and the courage to change the things I can. That's really important. It's the determination. I will do my best. And the wisdom to know the difference, which is, of course, extremely hard you, to know, okay, how long do I persist with this? How much do I push? Have I done my best? That kind of thing. And how long do you persist? How do, long do you push for? Um, it's a tricky question. I have a, a YouTube on that called Stuck Not Eating. 
where I give people a bit of a flow chart to help them decide how long you try. Do you then make up the food later? That kind of thing. Um, different pa parents and different clinicians say different things. And I think you have to assess it on the situation. On the whole, I would say the main advice is don't get hysterical because a meal hasn't failed. Some meals will fail. Just keep up your stance of being a confident, wise coach. It's not the end of the world. You know, so you might end a meal after you've really tried your best by saying something like, okay, let's change the mood. Let's go and feed the kittens, you know, rather than, oh my gosh, you didn't manage this meal. Do you realize what you're doing to yourself? Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. What about how much, how much do you serve? Because we know that, you know, the bigger gains are made in those weeks, first few weeks statistically, the better the outcome for recovery ultimately and survival as well. So that temptation would be there to start with an enormous plate. So what's the serving size that you recommend? So some treatment providers uh, go along the lines of giving you a meal plan, which means then you don't have to uh, torture yourself with that question. And there's the white coat effect that you can say to your child, that's your meal plan. That's what the experts have said you need. Now, if you get a meal plan, make sure it's food that is normal for your family, not strange food that you've never, ever had in your life. And make sure the meal plan keeps evolving. You don't want to get rigid around this is what we always eat. Others, like in uh, we did with FBT um, by the book, is we the way we were guided is it, we don't get a meal plan. The message to parents is you know how to feed your child. You work it out so that we get half a kilo to one kilo of weight gain every week on average. So the trick then is you can either start big if you've been told there is no risk of refeeding syndrome and starting big might mean this is how much I think you, in, in my head, I'm not going to say this aloud, but in my head, I, I'll think to gain weight, I think this is how much my child needs. So that's what I'm going to serve. But you can also decide to go a little bit more gently especially if you think there might be a risk of refeeding syndrome. So there, I believe what the professionals might do in a hospital is every three or four days, increase by three or 400 calories. And you keep doing that until you start seeing weight gain. But you start already reasonably generous. You start with more than your child has had up to now. So let's talk about refeeding syndrome, because that's something you've mentioned there. Um, just can you talk us through what that exactly is? I know that there's some research now that says that this might not actually be as, as serious a concern, but is it? Is it still a concern? I think most clinicians are uh, cautious because it's a it's a very low risk. It hardly happens, to, to according to this research. Um, but if it did happen, um, you might not know your child is um, having it, a chemical imbalance, which might be extremely dangerous to them. So some blood tests, some clinical monitoring. But most of all, we recognize it's we do our children more of a disservice by being um, 
overly cautious and not feeding them enough. So we mentioned refeeding syndrome because we're terrified of something terrible happening to our child, but it's it's overblown. Yeah. So as a parent, mention it to the, the, the doctor, say, are you checking? Are you doing the blood tests? And that's all. Okay. So that's introducing food too quickly, isn't it? Just reintroducing yes. food too quickly. So a, a large plate is okay. If they're not going to eat it all, is that all right as well? If if you're also having that battle that they're not going to eat it all? If they don't eat everything, again, you're back to this flow chart of choices. Um, do you... You, you certainly do your best. At the beginning, you want to establish the rule that what's on the plate must be eaten. You, you want to take that negotiation away. Um, you've got to think your child is having a massive internal conflict. So on the one hand, their body is crying out for food. You know, biologically, it's there. If your child is constantly looking at recipes and cookery programs, that's because their body is driving them to think and look for food, which we all have. And then our children who have an eating disorder have this extra weird um, component, which says, you've got to fight that. You're a pig. You're disgusting. You're eating too much. It, may, it might be saying um, you're going to get fat. And then nobody will love you. And you're an unlovable person. So there's this massive internal critic that is fighting the biological drive, the hunger, the, oh, I'm so tired. I wish I could eat. But you mustn't. You're disgusting. You're weak. So with all that, if we say to our child very quickly, clearly, you've left a bit of food on the plate, sweetheart. Everything on the plate is to be eaten. Yes, I really mean it. And then the connection might be, you know, connect before you direct might be, okay, so I'm not, I'm not surprised, sweetie, that it's hard for you to eat these, these last bits on your plate and try not say but. And at the same time, the whole plate must be eaten. On you go, next bite. So we're back to the direct prompt. So you're really doing your best to not give your ch child a lot of confusion that they can negotiate, that they might be able to get away with less food and please their internal bully. They've got to learn that you're trustworthy. It's, there's no point in negotiating. Give up the fight. Eat what's on the plate. That disgust factor is incredibly powerful, isn't it? I hear more about anxiety and terror around the food. I hear about that from people who've had an eating disorder more than disgust. Disgust can be there. The main emotion will be terror. So your child is in fight or flight in any case because they're malnourished, whether they've lost weight, whether they are currently be, uh, underweight on a BMI chart. The main thing is they're malnourished in whatever their weight They've lost weight or they're lacking carbohydrates or they're lacking fats. Their, their nutrition is um, improper and therefore their body puts them in a state of anxiety. Something is wrong. Do something about it. So they're in a state of anxiety. And when they see the food, 
it raises their anxiety because they have to fight this desire to eat, something like that. It's not all completely understood by science. It's amazing, isn't it, the human brain? It's just incredible, really, isn't it? When your child has, uh, well, my, my daughter had anorexia, and you just think, oh, my goodness, the, 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 the brain, the mood, the thinking becomes so distorted simply by malnutrition. Um, when and, and you see with refeeding, with weight and nutrition coming back online, you see their mood improve, their smiles come back, they become less, um, uh, oh, I'm fat, I'm disgusting. It's like they become more rational, they start smiling again. So this is the beauty of refeeding, is that it really makes our children better. It's not the only bit. Refeeding is only the first phase of eating disorder treatment. Uh, there's a lot more work to do after that. But um, it brings so many benefits, mostly, to most to most people. Mm. Um, so tell us a little bit more about your magic plate theory. So it's not my magic plate theory. Um, pa- parents have shared a lot on, on forums, on groups, ways to help your child to eat. And um, by the way, uh, the listeners should always take those as uh, ways of expanding their toolbox, but not as instructions. So that includes anything that I say. You've got to experiment. You've got to see what works for your child while learning what worked for other people. So it's what parents call the idea of giving the their child absolutely no choice, no wiggle room to quieten the, their resistant inner critic. So I decide what my child will eat. I don't consult them on that. I'll shop and cook without them. I'll keep them out the kitchen. I will put the food on the plate, the portion that I want them to eat as a wise guide. I know that's what they need. And then I call them to the table. And I'm going to spend the whole meal helping them, you know, paying, giving them my utmost attention to help them manage that meal. So it's magic in the sense that the plate just appears with the food that they need on it. They've not had any say in it. So the magic plate is very much at the extreme where we don't negotiate, we don't discuss, we don't even cons- I don't even consult my child. And I would say from my knowledge of talking to many parents, it is what gets things going. It's not forever, but it gets things started for 90%, 95% of people. But it's really important that parents know there are some kids who are able to collaborate and they do better that way. Uh, this happens especially with some, not all, autistic kids. So uh, we're getting to learn more and more Uh, from parents' experiences and autistic people's experiences. Actually, for me, I needed something quite different from what works with other kids. So I would say if you're going to try collaboration, you've got to have your eyes wide open and you say, okay, so what shall we have for dinner, sweetheart? And then your child says, I'll have X, Y, Z. And then you say, 
that sounds great. Now you'll need some more. What else would you like to add to that? And they say, leave me alone. I've already decided enough. Well, if they really fight that, they're not ready for collaboration. They will keep negotiating insufficient food and you're not going to make progress. But if they're ready to be there and help you in the kitchen and they say, oh my gosh, you're putting an awful lot of oil in there. And you go, that's what you need, sweetheart. Would you like to chop some more carrots for me, please? And if they can relax and it works and they're gaining weight, fantastic. You know, why not collaborate if it works? And the initial the initial starting point, though, would be a magic plate that just appears that you've done the cooking, the shopping, the prep and organizing that would be that the sort of starting point would be what what tends to be recommended start with that i mean you've probably already parents have already tried collaboration instinctively when they realized their child wasn't eating enough before they even took them to the doctor they'll have already tried to prompt and encourage and say i think you should have a bit more what else can you manage and they got a big pushback. So most parents already have discovered that collaboration doesn't work. Mm. But you can experiment both ways. Um, and and don't experiment for too long. Learn the lessons, review, do U-turns if you need to, and get that weight up quickly. So we have the plate. Is it good to offer choices, say two different kinds of biscuits, for example, or is that too confusing? Do we continue down the path of just being very firm about what's on the plate? Yeah. So here again, you learn by experience. It would be lovely to give our children choices. And ultimately for recovery, we want to get our children to the, a place where obviously they can choose food. And an intermediary step is give a choice between A and B. Now, you'll probably learn very quickly from trying um, if you should not give that choice or yes. So with my daughter, if I said, do you want this snack or that snack? And I would be holding the two up and I could see the panic on her face. And I think what was going on in her mind is this. Snack A looks infinitely more tasty. And it's even lower calorie because I know the calories for everything. It's two calories less. But I'm a bad person. I'm a hateful person. I can't have the delicious one. So I'll have to choose B. Oh, but B has two more calories. So you get this complete confusion and overwhelm, which leads to I'm not having either. <laughs> it's just more anxiety. So with my daughter, for a while, I learned to not give her choices. Um, if she said, mom, that looks disgusting. I'll have a uh, yogurt instead. Now, occasionally I would say, yeah, okay, why not? I'm very happy with you to have a yogurt instead. I would bring her the yogurt. What would happen? She'd look at it and she'd say, eh, what have you done to it? No, that's all wrong. It's too cold. It's too hot. It's too this, it's too that. So we still had a fight over this thing, which I thought she was going to eat more easily. So if experience shows you all those things, you learn that it's too early to give any kind of choice. So if your child says, I would like a yogurt instead, you say, well, I'm remembering that for another time. Today, this is what's on your plate. So keep going, my darling. 
But other parents find that very early on, their child is able to make choices, is able to do things which are, I would consider, more advanced. So yes, do it, do it. This is this is not a dogmatic uh, treatment. It's not a religion. The only criterion is, is this helping your child to get their full nutrition and if they need to regain weight to, to do so? I think that's what we're finding, you know, in this podcast, all the chats that we've had with people that it's trial and error and that it's just, let's see what works for my child. Let's see how we can twist this or change it, which I think is an important lesson for people, isn't it? Yes. And it's it's a bit scary. Um, and in in all this discussion I'm having with you, I really want to encourage parents to check things with their treatment team and feel free to say, I, I would like to try this. It's it, I think it would work better for my child. What do you think? And so on. The, the FPT method is can get a reputation of being terribly strict and dogmatic. And actually, uh, when you read the manual, it says that it's for parents as the experts on their child to work out with the help of the clinician um, how they're best going to support their child to, to do this weight regain in a first phase and then to do the rest of the work later. Um, there's a couple of schools of thought uh, around refeeding and whether or not you hide high calorie ingredients. So using lots of butter or cream, full fat products in meals to really help with those gains. Again, is this something that you recommend or think that's a, a good sort of trial and error with your children? Have you got an opinion on that? Um, okay. So first of all, there's a very open instruction that hopefully people will get from their treatment team, which is from here on, no diet foods, no low fat foods. So if you have yogurt or milk, it's the full fat version. And that can be a rule for life. You know, we don't need to eat diet foods. Um, but apart from that, yes, we, we want to bring the calories up in a smallish size on the plate. So we try and um, not fill our children's bellies with massive quantities, but make them high calorie and dense by adding in some, some fats. So my point of my view is that it is ethical and right to make the food very high calorie. And it's not useful for our child to agonize over the details. So in the same way as if you went for an operation, you would say, thank you for taking my appendix out. I really don't want to see the operation. I don't want to hear the details of how you're going to cut and, you know, all the, yeah. the gory details. So in the same way, if your child says, what did you put in there? Did you put some fat? Did you put some oil? Did you put some cream? It tastes yucky. You'd say, sweetheart, so this is the connect bit, darling, I don't blame you for wanting to know the details. You're probably hoping that it will help you to come to terms with it, to, to reduce your anxiety. So there's the connection. And then you move on to the direct, which is, um, and sweetheart, we know it doesn't help. It's not helpful if, if we talk about details, about ingredients. So trust me, this is what you need. And let's keep going. So you're not lying. You're not saying, I didn't put cream in there, which means if your child finds 
they walk into the kitchen one day when you are putting cream in there. Um, they don't like, oh, I never trust you. You lied. But you are still saving a life with a very tricky illness and they need they need the calories. So just don't discuss ingredients. Mm. Okay. So if there were three things you wanted people to know about refeeding, what do you think those three things would be, the three top points to remember when you come out of this podcast? First thing I would say, it gets easier. So the, in, you know, bringing on the concept that as a parent, you're going to be your child's coach, you're making decisions for them in order to help them get started with this treatment. It's hard, hard, hard at the beginning. You've already seen this, otherwise your child would already be eating. It gets easier. And so you need that hope and confidence all the way to the hope and in fact, the knowledge that your child will completely recover. Uh, the, the treatments work so much better nowadays than they used to when it was all about psychology and there was very little attention to actually getting people's bodies renourished. So it gets easier would be my first message. That's a great one. <laughs> <laughs> I think my second, I'll sandwich in the negative one, which is if it's not working, if you're not getting weight gain, half a kilo to one kilo a week, after three, four weeks, this is the time you should be getting more help, perhaps even sooner. Keep telling your clinicians, this is what we're doing. This is what we've tried. It's not working. We need more help. That is part of the treatment. It's to see, are the parents uh, managing? Is their child receptive? It's nobody's fault if the child is not receptive to this intervention. So get more help. Um, and then a third one. A third one would be probably the one parents most respond to, in my experience, parents who've seen my YouTube um, about a bungee jump. It's that if your child was to take a bungee jump, if you were to take a bungee jump and you were terrified, or if you were going to jump into a pit of snakes and you're terrified, what do you want from your coach to make you manage? And yeah. the idea is you really want that, okay, I've, I'm not getting conflicting information. My coach looks like this is going to be safe. Uh, it's a relationship of trust. Even though I don't really completely trust my coach, I feel, okay, I can take the next step. We're not looking for big motivation we're not looking for insight about, oh, I'm so ill, I need to get better. We're not looking for lecturing, educating, using a lot of logic with our children. We're just working on the next bite. So confidence and trust in you as a coach to get them well. Yeah. 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 It's, it's an implicit one. Your child will throughout is likely to say, I don't trust you. You don't know what you're doing. I hate you. You know, it's not nice while they're in fight or flight. Yeah. But implicitly, they come back to you. They come back to the table. There's a bit of them that says, make it easier for me. Rescue me. I'm so confused. I'm so scared. 
So three yeah. wonderful tips there from you. So it gets easier. Um, don't be afraid to change tack, try different things um, and coach with confidence and trust and love. Wonderful. <laughs> I also wanted to ask about some tips for families who really have to stay with their loved ones after meals. You know, a lot of carers really feel like prison guards watching their child like a hawk after a meal. Do you have any tips for that sort of part of the refeeding journey, I guess? It's part of the distraction. So rather than talking about prisons, prison guards and police, we should really see our role as extremely compassionate. And um, yeah, if, if, if the, the listeners here are on forums where they're getting analogies, which are quite aggressive, I propose you also think of the other, another stance, which is loving and supportive. And so after a meal, your child is probably in a state of extreme anxiety and guilt and remorse that they ate. Their tummy feels full, which is a really uncomfortable, scary sensation for them. And so you're trying to, uh, A, stop them from going to the bathroom in case they were going to purge, which is, with youngsters, it's not so common. But, you you know, if you think there's a risk, then you say you don't go to the bathroom for an hour after a meal. So go before the meal. And mostly after any meal that your child knows there'll be stuff to do to distract them. That will give them courage to eat, uh, knowing that... I sometimes think parents should think of themselves as an anxiety coach. Um, if your child knows they can bear the anxiety, even though they maybe have had a panic attack at some stage, you knew how to bring them down. You helped them. You distracted them. So that they know after a meal, you're going for a drive. I, I don't advocate a lot of exercise because that's part of the eating disorder, but yeah. maybe you'll go for a gentle walk together just for 10 minutes. Maybe you get into a Netflix series. Then again, you're presenting yourself as a coach. This has been hard for you, sweetheart. I'm with you. Let's keep you distracted. I really love your approach, Eva. It's so kind and caring. Uh, tell us a little bit about your um, journey with your daughter? Well, um, I at the beginning, I had I kept a diary every now and again, and rereading it has made me realize we tried absolutely everything. So uh, all the way to thumping the table and screaming at her while she's standing in front of her bowl of soup and screaming, do you want to just die or something like that? And I thumped the table and I shocked her so much. And I, just everything. We tried all the extremes and everything in between. And I hope that all the information we have nowadays, because, you know, she's 24 now and she was 11. <laughs> I hope all the information we have now is really helping people to try something which was more likely to work right now. The truth is, it, it 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 worked at that moment, but um, it only strengthened her resolve for the next meals. So we only went downhill. So it took me quite a while because nobody was coaching us. Um, eventually, I studied nonviolent communication (NVC), and I thought, right, I want to find a way of being compassionate 
and being persistent. I don't want to trust that just because I'm kind, my child will want to eat and want to recover. That's cuckoo land. But um, it, uh, I will trust that I can be both compassionate and persistent. I can really keep going, even though my child is, I stopped, I stopped being scared of my child's distress. I thought, hell, I'm distressed as well, and I can cope with it. I can live with it. And she's got my kindness. So, um, you know, I, I can, I can keep supporting her to eat bite by bite. My husband was very a good model because he was very kind and calm. I, sometimes I used to listen <laughs> through the door when he was doing a meal and think, oh, what is he doing? I've got to learn. I've got to learn some tips from him as well. And then um, we, we learned by experience that um, being confident and calm and knowing that if a meal failed, we shouldn't get ourselves all into disaster scenarios. We should just do our best. And then when you're doing six meals a day, you know, the next meal is quite soon. So, And it helps to know that you've got a hospital to rescue you if, you know, if it doesn't work, because you have to be bold. You can't spend the next few weeks or months saying, you want a plate of salad? Okay, if that's what you manage to eat, then so be it. No, you can't do that. You have to be bold. Thank you so much, Eva, for joining us on Strong Enough. I really think that you've reframed refeeding as a path to joy and really to be compassionate and persistent and bold. It's a wonderful message to give. So thank you so much for sharing that with our audience. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure to have this platform. I love what uh, EDFA does. It's just remarkable what a group of parents can do. If you'd like to hear more from Eva Musby, then head to her website, anorexiafamily.com, to access her full range of resources. EDFA also runs Australian support groups for local help, including the Fill the Gap Counselling Service, which provides one-on-one -on -one online sessions run just like a telehealth appointment, meaning advice and support is just a phone call away. Thanks for listening to Strong Enough, a podcast by Eating Disorders Families Australia, an organisation caring for carers around the country. Head to our website at edfa.org.au for links to more resources, including webinars, support groups and the Fill the Gap counselling services. All the links are in the show notes. And remember, you are strong enough. EDFA acknowledges Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the traditional custodians of the land this podcast was recorded on. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and future.